Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see y'all. Thank y'all for joining us today. And also, everyone that's tuning in on uh, Facebook Live, uh, thank you also for uh, being with us today on this Lord's Day. Uh, I read a blog post uh, this week from a pastor in Tennessee in preparation for this sermon. Uh, The post fits well with our current sermon series on the Imago Dei. Uh, This pastor writes, uh, a Danish philosopher told a story of thieves who broke into a jewelry store and didn't steal anything. They simply rearranged the price tag. The next morning, the, the expensive jewelry was sold as junk, and the junk jewelry was sold as expensive. His point is obvious. We live in a world where someone has rearranged the price tag. Genesis 3 rearranges the price tag in God's good creation. The fall rearranges the price tag that's on every image bearer in the world. No human being gets a pass. None of us are exempt. The fall does not discriminate. It is an equal opportunist when it comes to messing up our life. The fall has fallen on all of us. And for some of us, that fall is severe, extremely severe. You see, the fall is the reason why the image of God in us is distorted and marred and shattered. It prevents us from reflecting God perfectly. It even breaks our relationship with God. Did you know that? The fall does that. It's what separates us from him because of our sin. The fall shatters our relationship with the rest of creation, causing us to worship it or to abuse it or to curse it. The fall breaks our relationship with ourselves. I preached on this last week. The seven aspects of human wholeness in us, they don't function perfectly. They would not function perfectly in any of us. There would be intellectual psychological, emotional, physical, sexual, spiritual, and aesthetic brokenness in all people. And the same is true in our relationships with other people. The fall breaks interpersonal relationships between image bearers. Have you you ever wondered why relationships are hard? (laughs) Have you ever wondered that? Genesis 3. It shatters and distorts them. Relationships are hard because of the fall. And please hear this. Every relationship you have with another person will be stained by sin. These relationships can be healthy, but sin will always be present. The fall has fallen on all types of human relationships. Family, friends, romantic partners, colleagues, teammates, classmates, church family, and even cross-cultural relationships. The fall has rearranged the process on those relationships. And that's why there will be pain and hurt in some of those relationships in this life. Before we move forward, I please ask you to pray with and for me. Holy Spirit, I am not worthy to stand here each week to deliver God's word. I am not. I am not. It is not my goodness that makes me qualified. 
It is not because I went to seminary that makes me qualified. It's not because of my theology that makes me qualified. It's because the Father has called me. It's because he has called me to this. And so I need the same word that is going to be preached today. The preacher is but a vessel. The, the preacher is not part of the Godhead. The preacher is not perfect. The preacher is, is not a, a, a mini Holy Spirit to everybody. The preacher is also in need of grace. So, Holy Spirit, you are the one that leads us into all truth. That is your role. In fact, that is your lane. So will you please, Holy Spirit, you live in each and every one of us, that the same spirit that, that came at Pentecost is the same spirit that lives in God's people today. You haven't lost any of your power. You haven't lost any of your swag. You are still doing what you have done, drawing people into the kingdom, sanctifying the saints. Help us give you some credit. Help us to acknowledge you. As we acknowledge the Father and the Son, you are not the C team. You are just as important in the Godhead as the Father and the Son. And so, Holy Spirit, forgive us for taking you for granted. But today, the sin, today moves. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. In Genesis 2, the Lord God says something in his good creation isn't good what is it what are your thoughts the lord god says it is not good that man should be alone i will make a helper fit for him the helper who is fit for adam is eve she's created out of a rib that the lord god takes from adam's side and yes i know that sounds too good to be true I know it sounds like some fantasy and sci-fi movie, but it's real. Genesis 2, verses 21 and 22 says, So God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he, he took one of his ribs and closed it the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Eve is created by God. To be Adam's like opposite helpmate. She's like him because she is also created in the image of God with the same value, same worth, and same dignity. She is his like she, she's his opposite because she's female and he's male. So when the Lord God brings Eve, brings Eve to Adam, this is what Adam says. This is at last. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Notice, Adam knows where the woman comes from, even though he was asleep when it happened. He knows that she was taken out of him and, and created from one of his ribs. And TVC saints and guests, please hear this. Eve isn't just taken out of Adam's side. She's to function and live by his side as his equal. Eve isn't just taken out of his side. She's to live and function by his side 
as his equal, not beneath him and not less than him. She isn't created to be his commodity and object. She's created to be his queen, his queen to be, as one movie said. And together, they are the crown of God's good creation. Genesis 2 and verses 24 and 25, it also offers a commentary on, on their marriage and even future marriages. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Adam and Eve's marriage at this point is perfect. The leaving and the cleaving is perfect. The, the oneness between them is perfect. They're naked and not ashamed. Can you imagine the marital bliss at this point? But everything that's perfect and, and whole and blameless about that marriage in Genesis 3 in Genesis 2, shatters in Genesis 3. The distortion of interpersonal relationship begins with the marriage relationship between our first parents, Adam and Eve. And their marriage falls under the curse of sin. Marriage isn't sin, okay? Please know that. But it falls under the curse of sin. There's a difference. And so the innocence leaves, the, the oneness breaks, the, the paradise is lost. Intimacy is now marred and, and connection is now hard. And many of y'all know why. Adam and Eve, they, they had a, a great fall, kind of like Humpty Dumpty, you know, standing on the wall, who eventually has a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put him back together again. That's what happened to our first parents. When they rebelled against God by eating from the forbidden fruit, their disobedience causes their great fall. And and the results is many negative consequences. Many negative consequences. So these sermons are all connected. So those consequences are already talked about. So you need to go back and listen to the previous sermons. It leads to judgment. Judgment from the hands of God who created them in his own image. He judges everyone responsible for the great fall and that breaks his creation, that breaks his relationship with his image bearers, that breaks the imago Dei, that breaks interpersonal relationships. You see, he judges the man, the woman, and the serpent. The Lord curses the serpent. In Genesis 3, verse 4, he says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. That's what he says to the serpent. But I want you to understand something, saints and guests. The Lord God doesn't say to our parents, cursed are y'all. That's important. He says to the serpent, cursed are you. But he does not say to Adam and Eve, cursed are y'all. He doesn't curse them like he does the serpent. He judges them. You see, their rebellion brings them under the curse of the fall. They themselves are not cursed. That's a difference. God's judgment upon them is descriptive, not prescriptive. That means he's telling them this is what your life is going to be like now. This is what you're going to experience now. This is what your marriage will experience now. And in Genesis 13b, he says to Eve, Your desire shall be for your husband, 
but he shall rule over you. Well, pastor, what does the Lord mean by that? The Hebrew term that's translated desire in verses 16b is only used two other times in all the Old Testament. Two other times. One use is positive, the other use is negative. The negative use is in, is in chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. In these verses, the Lord God addresses Cain about his attitude and about what sin can do to him. He says to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That's negative. The positive use is in Psalms of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10. And it says this, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. That desire is in the context of marriage. It's good. It's positive. So the question now becomes, how is the term being used in Genesis 3, 16b? Is Eve's desire negative or is it positive? What do you believe? There are many interpretations about her desire. Some say it's negative. Some say it's positive. What do you believe? In your study of scripture, in your reading, your Bible studies, and other people that you listen to, what do you believe? Some common interpretations are this, sexual desire, it's attraction, it's dependency, it's a, a violent craving. And one interpretation calls it a, a pathological craving that makes her the willing slave of a man. You like that interpretation? Another one says her desire is subservient to, her, to those of her husband. And another interpretation puts enmity between Adam and Eve by defining her desire as an attempt to possess and to control Adam. Again, what do you believe? I used to believe that her desire was exclusively negative. In the sermon series that I preached on marriage years ago, I said this desire in Genesis 3:16 is in the context of judgment. I don't believe that this desire is one of warm, fuzzy feelings and feelings of great appreciation, but a violent, sinful craving. She'll crave for her husband's role in marriage. She'll crave to control him, and she'll crave him so much that, she, that she'll make him into an idol. Like I said, that's what I used to believe. But the Spirit gave me some insight this week during my sermon preparation. I now believe that her desire would be a mixture of good and evil, both positive and negative. Remember what happens to them after they eat from the tree. What happens? What happens to them? They become aware of good and evil. They will now experience both. And they themselves will now be a mixture of both. Their existence will be in shades of gray, not simply black and white. Well, that's an amen statement there. And the same is true for our existence. All image bearers have shades of gray about them, which is a sign of God's common grace. My ethics professor in seminary puts it this way. You can deny some of the image of God in you some of the time. You can even deny all the image of God in you some of the time. But you cannot deny all the image of God in you all the time. Why? Common grace. 
There's a reason why we're not as sinful as we can be. Common grace. Eve's desire towards her husband will sometimes be negative. It will sometimes be positive. And many of you know the negative. You've heard tons of sermons on Genesis 3.16. Sunday school lessons about it. You read books about it. But have you ever heard what, what's the positive side of this desire? Look at verse 16 with me. The Lord says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be towards your husband, but he will rule over you. God's judgment upon her and Eve, from Eve and Adam, directly connects to a goodness and blessing given to them in Genesis 1 and 2. God's judgment in verse 16a connects to one aspect of the, the, the blessing of the creation mandate in Genesis 1:28. He says, he blesses them and says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Human reproduction is not, part, it's not a curse of the fall. Is it? Is it? Is us having babies a consequence of the fall? It is not. It is a blessing of creation. But what happens in Genesis 3 is that it goes under the curse of sin now. It's under the curse. Now, now Eve will now have much pain in childbearing. The same dynamic, saints, is happening in 16b with the goodness and the blessing of Christian marriage that was instituted in Genesis 2. Remember what Adam says to God after he, he brings Eve to him. He turns into an R&B singer. He turns into Johnson, Johnson Heights' own Randy Watson. Or like Eda James. Eda James, at last, my love has come along. My lonely days are over. Life is like a song. Oh, yeah. Adam says, this at last is bones of my bones. Flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That boy can sing, can't he? Don't forget also what it says in the next verses after that. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Perfect intimacy, perfect connection, perfect harmony. Per harmony, perfect relationship, perfect conversation. She can go around the world and explains everything, and Adam is like, I get it. I'm with you. Yes, I'm there. But Genesis 3 brings all that goodness and all that blessing of marriage and human relationships under the curse of sin. Marriage and human relationships are still good. They're just going to be hard now. There will be positive and negative aspects of all relationships, a mixture of good and evil. There will be shades of gray in all of your relationships. And for Eve, the positive side of her desire is this. She's going to long for what was lost. In her marriage. She's going to long for what was lost. One pastor writes, the problem with the woman under the curse is not that she manipulates and dominates. It's that she longs for what was lost, and that longing is to her husband. She's going to long for Genesis 2. She's going to long for 
This is that last bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's going to long for the oneness, the closeness, the, the unity, and the love that they had in Genesis 2. She's going to long for the leaving and then the cleaving. She's going to long for being one flesh. She's going to long for them to both be naked again without shame. We make a big mistake in Christianity when we interpret Eve's desire as simply black and white. We cause great pain in marriages between husbands and wife, when we interpret her desire as only negative and evil and sinful, control, try to control her husband. And some churches do that. She's not Adam's enemy, even after the fall. If a husband sees his wife as someone he needs to dominate, that is a consequence of the fall. Her desire, is to, her desire will be a mixture of good and evil, both positive and negative. It's both and. A 21-year-old Christian husband writes a letter to another Christian who runs a website and, and talks a lot about gender roles. The husband and his wife are newlyweds. They've, they've only been married for one year. And in this letter to, to, this, to this other person, this, this Christian, Christian husband says, my wife is 18 and I'm 24. Now I'm trying to get my wife to follow her role as I assume my role as leader. I'm six years older than her, but that seems to just make things worse. She keeps saying, you're not my father. She was raised in a strict home, and I guess she thinks now that she's married, she's free from all authority. I recently put us on a budget. I created a budget. I keep my side, but she keeps overspending. This husband is frustrated, confused, without any clear direction on how to, for, for, to make his marriage healthy. He and his wife are struggling to, to do life together. I mean, they're newlyweds. All newlyweds go through that. That's why he reaches out to this other Christian for help. And that's why he's on this person's website reading an article. And one of the articles he reads and highlights is called Seven Ways to Discipline Your Wife. It lists seven things that a husband can discipline his wife for. I guess seven is the lucky number. And here are the seven. You can discipline your wife for disrespect. You can discipline her for overspending. You can discipline her for failing to care for your kids and contradicting your authority with your kids. You can discipline her for watching too much TV. You can discipline her for too much time online. You can discipline her for neglect of the home. And you can discipline her for sexual denial. And this is stuff that's been taught in some churches. And this husband continues in his letter. He says, I read your article on seven ways to discipline your wife, and, and you recommend taking away her debit card. I could do this, but in my view, that should be the last option. So I'm considering to start spanking her. I mentioned it to her, not on the budget, but in general. She is against it. She says spanking is treating her like a child. You think? And she's right. Wife spanking? Is this what's been taught in churches? Come on, son. That's from the pit of hell. The young husband, he does receive counsel from this other Christian, and his counsel comes in the form of seven ways and seven steps on how to groom your wife. First, 
You got to unlearn what the culture has taught you. Step two, husbands, you must learn to embrace gender roles. Step three, seek out a male mentor. Step four, you must teach your wife her gender roles. And step five, you must get your wife a spiritual mentor. Step six, you must, mo- you must mold your wife into the glorious wife you want her to be. And step seven, you must discipline your wife, which can include spanking. This whole messed up situation is an example of what the Lord God says Eve will experience from Adam in that marriage going forward. Look at verse 16b. Your desire should be for your husband, but he will rule over you. I need y'all to understand something. Adam's leadership and headship in marriage was given in Genesis 2 before the fall. It's good. It's a blessing. But now it's under the curse of sin. The way that he would exercise that leadership and headship will be positive and negative. It, be a, it will be a mixture of good and evil. It will be in shades of gray. He will at times lead her well, and other times he would try to rule over her. And sometimes that can be abusive and oppressive. And guess what? He's already done it. What does he tell God after God catches him in sin? What does he say? He says, the woman you gave me to be with me. She gave me the fruit and I ate. What happened to R&B, Adam? What happened to bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh? What happened to that, Adam? The fall happened. Rebellion happened. Sin happened. And what he did to her there was him ruling over her in a way that is not healthy. He threw her under the bus. The fall has fallen on every marriage. Your marriage can be healthy but it would never be perfect like it was in Genesis 1. There would be issues in our marriages. Marriages will have their broken places. In some marriages, in some marriages, there will be all kinds of abuse, infidelity, and abandonment. All that stems from Genesis 3. All of it. What does this mean for people who aren't married? For those who are single, it means you are still created to be in healthy relationships with other people. And second, it means your singleness is not a curse of the fall. Singleness is not a curse of the fall. God is not punishing you. You're not less than because you're not married. Merit does not make you whole. The imago Dei is what makes you whole, being created in the image of God. What does this mean for other types of human relationships? Like marriage, all interpersonal relationships are broken. The fall has fallen on all of them. They can be healthy, but they will still be stained by sin. Professor Laura Roberts writes, sin means we are unable to fully image God as we were created to. The, re- the reflected image is distorted and marred. We remain relational to the core, but our relationships are broken and distorted. We become controlling and manipulative and abusive. We treat others as objects. Instead of mutual partners, we think of ourselves only, always taking, never giving. Or we think not enough of ourselves, losing ourselves out of self-respect and lopsided relationships. The flaw in our mirror feeds into and is fed by the distorted understanding of what loving relationships look like. Saints. In the creation mandate in Genesis 128, 
there's another blessing in that mandate. And that is the responsibility for image bearers to subdue the earth and to exercise dominion over it. God's intent does not include subduing and ruling over other image bearers. Please know that. When he gave that mandate in Genesis 1.28, it did not include one image bearer to exercise dominion over another. But now in Genesis 3, that mandate, that part of the mandate is under the curse of sin. That means image bearers will subdue one another. It means we will exercise dominion over each other. Image bearers will dehumanize one another. It means people in power will abuse that power. They will use that power to oppress other people. Look at human history. What story does it tell about how we treat those who are created in the image of God? It tells us this. If I can get over on you, I will. If I think I'm superior and better than you, then I'll take advantage of you. And if I can dehumanize you enough, then I, I won't feel guilty about oppressing you. The first example of an image bearer ruling over another is seen in Genesis chapter 4. What happens there? Cain kills his own brother in cold blood with his own hands. The brother that he grew up with, he takes his life. Genesis 4, verse 8 says, Cain spoke to his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is no. The answer is no for, for, for all humanity throughout all of our history. We're not naturally bent to be keeper of fellow image bearers, particularly ones who are different than us. Look at history. Look at what's happening in our world. There's a reason why there's murder, abuse, discrimination, war, genocide, racism, human trafficking, slavery, gun violence, and differences. There's a reason that stuff exists. Genesis 3. <laughs> you want to know why the world is filled with evil? Christians have the answer. Genesis 3. It's right here. That's the reason why. This is the reason why the world is broken. And look at the history of our country. Look at what happened to the Native Americans. Look what happened to my ancestors. Slavery, sharecropping, lynching, Jim Crow, redlining, the destruction of Black Wall Street, white supremacy, and more. Look at what's happening in American politics right now. What's happening in American politics right now? If I can dehumanize the other side, make them appear less than, than human, then it's okay for me to, to destroy them. That's what's happening. Each camp that dehumanizes the other. That side is the bad people. My side is the good people. What is that? Genesis 3. And Christians should smell that from miles away, but we don't. We loop in with them. Look at what's happening in council culture and call out culture. That's a result of the fall. If you get counseled today, there's no path to redemption for you. Because you have been dehumanized. You're not even human anymore. Look at systemic racism and injustice, that, and injustice that exists in our country. If you don't believe that systemic injustice is not in America, if you don't believe there's systemic injustice in America, then you don't believe in Genesis 3. Period. You cannot. 
Genesis 3 really messed things up. It didn't just, it didn't just make a scratch in creation. It broke it, people. It broke it. And if you don't believe that, then you don't really believe the fall has fallen on the red, white, and blue. What you believe is that America is the exception. She's different. And beloved, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Christian nationalism is a consequence of the fall. That is not Christianity. Jesus says the gates of hell should not prevail against my church, not any particular country. So get it right, saints. It's the church. Not any particular country. The church. There's a reason why humanity hasn't already destroyed each other. It's God's common grace. Common grace. I'm so grateful for that. Humanity has fallen, but we're not as fallen as we can be because God's common grace is at, at work here. Do you think our country has progressed to this place because we're good people or because it's a blessing of God's common grace upon us? It's common grace. His common grace is the everyday grace he gives to everyone without distinction between one person and, an- and another. You see, he still preserves and sustains his creation even though it has fallen under the curse of sin because it's his creation. Matthew 5, 45 says, God makes his son rise on the, on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. One theologian says, common grace curbs the destruction, the destructive power of sin, maintains in a measure the moral order of the, of the universe, thus making, it, making an orderly life possible, distributes in various degrees gifts and talents among men, promotes the development of science and arts, and showers untold blessing upon the children of men. That is common grace. That is why we're still here. That is why we're still here. An example of this common grace is put on display right here in Genesis 3. First, God allows Adam to name his wife Eve which shows God hasn't taken away his role in marriage. And it's interesting that he names her after the fall, not before the fall. Genesis 3.20 says, The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve's name sounds like the Hebrew term for life giver. Eve being the mother of all living is a sign of common grace. Second, God does not leave them barely naked with fig leaf covering. Because remember, when God is passing judgment, they are still covered in fig leaves. He, he could have left them that way, but he doesn't. He provides garments for them, garments of skin. Do you all know what that means? He sacrifices an animal. Blood is shed so the Lord God can clothe Adam and Eve. Verse 21 says, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them common grace common grace third he banishes them from the garden of eden rightfully so it's their punishment but i believe that there's a common grace in this punishment look at uh, verse chapter 13 verses 22 through 24 then the lord god said behold a man has become like one of us that's him speaking within the trinity and knowing good and evil now least he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man. He drove out the man. And at, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and, and a flaming sword, turning every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the common grace. He didn't want them to eat from the tree of life and live forever in a fallen state. Can you imagine that? Living forever in a fallen state with no path to ever being redeemed. That was the blessing. That was the common grace. So I praise and thank God for that. But common grace isn't special grace. There's a difference. Common grace is wonderful, but it ain't special grace. You see, special grace is regenerating, redemptive, and justifying grace. It's saving grace that, that, makes ava- that God makes available through the finished work of, of Jesus Christ. It's the grace that leads to reconciliation. It's the grace that atones for, for our sin. Special grace by which God redeems and, and sanctifies and glorifies his people. And his people are those who have saving faith in Jesus Christ. Another theologian describes God's special grace as his voluntary, unrestrained, unmerited favor towards guilty sinners, granting them justification and life instead of death, which they deserve. That's special grace. And the foreshadowing of this special grace is given right here in Genesis 3, verse 15. Many theologians call this the first announcement of the gospel. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and, he, and you shall bruise his heel. That, please know the term for offspring and seed is in the singular. It's not talking about every seed. It's talking about one seed. God promises that a future seed from Eve will defeat the enemy. And Adam, listen to this, Adam hears this promise. He names his wife Eve after this. The one theologian said God, he, he, he hears the promises of Genesis 3.15 and in faith. And so he called his wife Eve. God, Adam, is, Adam is judged for his fault in the fall. But his next words are words of hope and, and words of, of, of faith. Because Eve is going to be the mother of the one seed who's going to make everything right. And that seed is Jesus Christ. That seed is Jesus Christ. When Cain killed Abel, they had another, Adam and Eve had another son, Seth. In the Old Testament, you have the godly line and the ungodly line. Christ comes through this line of Seth, the godly line. He comes in the incarnation to bring about cosmic redemption. It's not just individual salvation. Cosmic redemption, the renewal of all things. The redemption of all the creation through his life and, and death and a resurrection. The Imago Day is shared by the fall, but it finds redemption through the finished work of Christ, saints. And that is where we headed in the next part of this sermon series, that everything the fall has broken, Christ is in the process of making anew. That's what he's doing. Praise God for that. The message Bible says, if one man sins, Put crowds of people at death ends abyss of separation from God. Just think about God's gift poured through one man, Jesus Christ would do. 
if death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine, imagine the breathtaking, recovering life makes, sovereign life in those who grasp with both hands this life-giving gift, this grand set and everything right that the one man Christ provides? Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one man did wrong and put all of us into trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. And got us out of it. More than that, more than getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. The one man said no to God and put many in the wrong. And one man said yes to God and put many in the right. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. You see, this whole series on the Imago Day, Imago Day created, the Imago Day shattered, and the Imago Day redeemed is on purpose. It makes us appreciate the good news when you realize what the fall has done to us. It makes us see other people different when we realize they're created in the image of God first before we look at their sin. The image bears first. And Christ is going to come and restore all of that. And it begins here in the church when he redeems us. And then when we're doing life together as a family, then that is a witness to the gospel message. And so, saints, next week we will begin looking at Christ as the redeemer. And the rest of the sermon series is going to be spent on how he restores our relationship with ourselves, how he can restore our relationship with each other. Because here's the thing, saints, if Jesus can't fix it, if Jesus can't fix it, no book, no president, no political party, no seminar, no Bible study, no conference would do if Jesus can't do it. There's nothing else I have to offer you than what Christ has done. There's nothing else we can offer the world but what Christ has done. There's nothing I can offer your relationship with your family and your kids other than what Christ has done for you. So I cover your prayers as I prepare next week. And please join me in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you that you already had a plan when our first father messed up. As the message Bible says that one man said no to you and put many of us in the wrong. But the one man, Jesus Christ, said yes, and he put many of us in the right. Thank you for that. Thank you, Father, that, that you are always ahead of us. You, you already know what we need. I thank you that you're not building the airplane as, we, as you fly it. You don't do that. You don't make it up along the way. That's not the type of God that you are. So, Father... I pray for your people. I pray that you continue to watch over them. I pray for those that are here and those that are tuning in. If they do not know you, if they do not have faith in Jesus Christ, that Holy Spirit, you will pull them in. Because nothing else will ever give them the hope and peace and the satisfaction that they're looking for. Everything else is sinking sand. Christ is the one true solid rock. So, Jesus, thank you. For your goodness, thank you for your faithfulness. In, all, in Christ's name I pray, amen.